This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brim. Today, we explore the process of colonization and decolonization from a comparative perspective. My guest is Lachlan McNamee, who has recently published the book, Settling for Less, Why States Colonize and Why They Stop. I define colonization as a process of state building involving the displacement of indigenous peoples by settlers. So kind of drawing on the original Roman definition of the word, colonization originates in the Latin word colonus or farmer. So it was coined to describe the process where the Roman Empire would annex new territories, would send farmers to those er territories to kind of claim that area on behalf of the state. Lachlan McNamee is an assistant professor of political science at UCLA and a lecturer of politics at Monash University in Australia. Lachlan McNamee, welcome to Fresh Ed. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So congratulations on your new book. It is absolutely fantastic. So well researched. You have a very particular definition of colonization in your book. Can you tell me what that definition is? How do you understand colonization? So in my book, I define colonization as a process of state building involving the displacement of indigenous peoples by settlers. So kind of drawing on the original Roman definition of the word, colonization originates in the Latin word colonus or farmer. So it was coined to describe the process the Roman Empire would annex new territories, it would send farmers to those er territories to kind of claim that area on behalf of the state. Um, and this kind of uh, definition we see, you know, it's kind of an ecological definition in some ways. When we talk about bees or birds or other animals colonizing territories, we're talking about particular species moving into a new territory and setting up shop. And so that's what I'm, when I use the word colonization, in the kind of, when I'm referring to human beings, I'm using it to refer to the kind of process by which people who are ethnically distinct kind of move into a territory, kind of displace a pre-existing population and establish their own kind of uh, state. Interesting. So in a way, it's some of the key pieces of this definition are land and sort of that ecological focus, as you say, and then the state, it's sort of a process of the state as well as the settlers who are actually the ones going into this new territory. So how does this particular definition sort of connect or is it different from other definitions of colonization that are sort of circulating in the literature today? Because a lot of people are writing about colonization today or decolonization, I should say. Colonization in the popular discourse is often mixed up with imperialism. So when we talk about European colonization, say in the 1700s, the 1800s, the process by which European empires have conquered new territories across much of the world, people often use that, refer to colonization in that way. But I'm trying to distinguish, keep these two things separate, because really that's imperialism. States expanding their territory is, is a form of imperialism, but colonization is the practice by which states kind of exert control over a territory. So not all imperialism involves colonization. States can annex territory but not displace a pre-existing population and insert a new population of settlers, or sometimes they, they occur in tandem. So that's really what I'm trying to do is keep those two things separate because different theories apply for why states want, might want to annex territories with why they might want to displace a population and kind of import a new population. So what would be an example of imperialism without colonization? British India is kind of the canonical example. And indeed, when uh, kind of Britain first annexed the British East India Company and uh, other companies first started to exert control over India, kind of the viceroy of this company in the late 1700s 
you know, wrote to Britain was saying how they wanted to restrict people from being able to colonize India from Britain. So even at that time, people were distinguishing between British imperialism and trying to exploit the labor and trade in, in, a, in a new territory with colonization, with kind of colonists coming in from Europe and displacing the existing population. The voice, the viceroy at the time didn't want that because he felt like that would, and this is Charles Cornwallis, he felt that that would inflame conflict and kind of imperil British control over over India. The British Empire engaged in imperialism in the British Raj in, in, in India, but then did they also engage in colonization in other locations? Yes. So, you know, the canonical example would be, you know, Australia, where colonization displacing kind of indigenous population importing new settlers was kind of integral to British rule in, in Australia. So that's the, those are the two kind of, the, that's the main distinction I'm trying to draw. It's really quite fascinating because when you do that, then you, you can start zooming in on sort of why colonization, right? Why would a state decide to choose that approach to further its interests, whatever it is? So I guess, you know, why do states choose to colonize? Yeah, so that's it. You know, it opens up questions. Why did Britain, say, colonize Australia with settlers but not India? And in the book, I distinguish between two logics. One is settler-led colonization. So in some settings, especially prior to the 1900s, settlers would often move into frontier territories, and then states are kind of forced with the, the decision whether they want to extend their protection to these settlers moving into frontier areas, or do they want to try and restrict settlement. And I kind of describe how in the book this Settler-led colonization, kind of homesteading, as it is often called in the U.S., was kind of key to how the British state colonized Australia, the U.S. state colonized the West. It was really settlers moving into frontier areas, and the state kind of followed. And that, in some ways, it's often said in New Zealand, the colonial tail wagged the dog. The colonial state followed the settlers. So that's settler-led colonization. But state-led colonization is where the state's actively trying to recruit people to move into a frontier area where they've cleared of, of the indigenous population. And you could see that in Britain, in Ireland, in the early 1600s, as, as well as right up to the current day in, in places like, of course, Israel and the West Bank, but also China and Xinjiang. In all these, in these settings, the state is really the one trying to recruit settlers. Bureaucrats are designating sites for settlement. So it has quite a different logic to kind of settler-led colonization. And the reason why states to this, this state-led colonization, is not because settlers are moving into frontier areas of their own volition. It's because they have faced some kind of crisis on the frontier, a crisis of control. They might be facing a rebellion or a potential threat of invasion from a foreign claimant, and so they want to quickly move stereotypically loyal people from the core into the frontier. And by having people that are ethnically like the metropole in these frontier locations it would supposedly end the crisis, whatever that crisis is. Yes. So, for instance, in Ireland, which I mentioned before, the crisis at the time was that the Spanish Armada had almost just invaded and the Catholic Irish were seen as supporting Catholic Spain. And so Britain wanted to import kind of Protestant co-religionists to Northern Ireland to provide a kind of first line of defense against a future invasion and prevent future collusion on the ground 
ground between Catholics and kind of co-religionists in Spain. And that, that's the same um, reason I describe states often to the current day engage in, in colonization is when they're facing a crisis and they need, and they don't trust the local indigenous population. So they want to quickly import co-ethnics into that kind of contested frontier. And a key example would be, for instance, Turkey and Cyprus in the seventies after Turkey annexed kind of the northern half of Cyprus, it quickly wanted to import kind of hundreds of thousands of Turks from the Turkish mainland to Cyprus to try to kind of to basically establish its control over that area that had been formerly populated by ethnic Greeks, who the Turk state did not kind of trust as they were seen as allegiant to Greece. That sort of state-led colonization, it would it would have to be expensive, wouldn't it, to sort of send all of these people from the metropole to co-ethnics to these far-off lands? I would imagine that is a costly endeavor for a state. Yeah, it is very costly. And so that's why it's when states are considering, you know, whether to colonize a frontier, the colonization is never their kind of first best alternative, because what states really want to in general want to do is kind of economically exploit a pre-existing population. But colonization by kind of you have to has many costs, you have to recruit settlers, you have to displace a pre-existing population, which usually inflames a conflict in the short run. And it also has international costs in terms of reputation and may actually a neighboring state may object to that process, which is something that happened in Turkey and Cyprus. And so in all of the cases that I describe in the book, colonization only happens after states see a kind of pressing rebellion or need to kind of colonize a frontier. For instance, Portugal had long exploited the indigenous population of Angola for hundreds of years, from right from the 1600s to the 1900s. But it was only in 1961, at the start of the Angolan War of Independence, that uh, Angola started to really try and recruit Portuguese settlers to come to Angola because it faced this great insurgency in the rural areas and so particularly wanted to recruit soldiers to move there. So it spent, you know, um, millions of t- tens of millions of dollars trying to get settlers to move there, but managed to only recruit a, a, a relatively small number. And so in this way, the colonization is kind of like a war. It's a response to war. It's a response to conflict. And it's a very costly things, thing for states to do, but it's something they do when they think that they're going to lose control over the frontier if they don't quickly import a population there. And it's quite fascinating when, you know, it's almost like the failed colonization, as you were saying in Portugal and Angola, where the state really wants to move in and sort of displace the local population and, and you know, settle the conflict as, as it sees it. But then settlers don't go. And that's quite fascinating. So, you know, the state, do they provide sort of incentives to, for settlers to actually move to these, you know, far off lands? Yeah. So this is the key, one of the key dynamics I describe in my book is this struggle of states to get settlers to move to these frontier areas, because we can't presume it's always successful. Historically, it, it was actually relatively easy for states to engage in colonization. Machiavelli, when he talks about it in Prince, you know, doesn't even think it's an issue because historically land was such a valuable asset agricultural land, that really if you'd opened up in scare quotes land on the frontier to settlers from the core, then landless people in the core who might be quite impoverished quickly want to move there to kind of take up that land. And so so Britain and Ireland, for instance, in Northern Ireland didn't really have that great a struggle to recruit settlers, especially from Scotland, who were relatively close. And because land was such a valuable asset, people wanted to to quickly take up land that was being offered to them. We see that again, you know, in, in less developed states 
States today, like Indonesia, Indonesia 20th century resettled about 5 million people from its core islands to its outer islands simply by opening up land. And its land, and these resettlement policies were actually oversubscribed because people wanted to take up land in the frontier. And so there was in fact a kind of, you could say a wait list to, to become a trans migrant. So historically, this wasn't actually a very difficult thing to do to colonize, but it becomes much more difficult as states become more developed. And why is that? So as states develop, um, people lose their interest in becoming farmers. So urbanization happens, industrialization happens, and the, the relative returns to farming versus, say, moving to a city start to go down and down. So the link between economic development and urbanization is one of the kind of few laws that exist in social science. As countries develop, they become more urbanized. People move from the countryside to urban centers. And so essentially, as states develop, they increasingly have a kind of mismatch in the alignment of between themselves and their settlers. They want to, they might want to settle a contested frontier like Portugal and Angola, but they might struggle to actually get people to, to move there because people no longer want to take up land in the frontier. They want to move to industrial centers, urban centers. And so most of Portugal's migration that happened in the 1960s and 70s was to other parts of Western Europe, to North, to North America, to the United States, or to Portuguese cities where they could take up jobs as the, the returns to doing so were much higher than, say, becoming a farmer in, in rural Angola. It's a really interesting insight. And I think in, you know, in your book, you talk about how it, it's sort of a form of modernization theory, which sometimes gets a bad rap today. But you're sort of saying that these sort of stages of development change the calculus for using colonization as a state building process because the settlers that are needed to do to be involved in colonization they have different interests as a state gets wealthier. And that's a, it's a really interesting sort of insight that sort of brings back, in a way, modernization theory. Yeah, so you're, you're right. Modernization theory is not very fashionable in social science right now. But, you know, in some ways, the demographic foundations of modernization theory are still there. So in demography, the demographic transition, other forms of transition are still kind of seen as these iron laws of demography. That as states develop, they become more urban. And so I'm extending that insight to basically to understand settler colonialism and to colonization, because as states develop, they can no longer get people to move to frontier areas with the promise of free land. And that was the case of Portugal and Angola. I also uh, spent a lot of time talking about Australia, this kind of canonical settler state that tried to settle Papua New Guinea throughout the 20th century, but failed to do so because European settlers wanted to move to Sydney and Melbourne and to other urban centres. Um, so I contrast Indonesia and Australia. Indonesia successfully settled West Papua, the western half of New Guinea, by opening up land there. Australia tried to do the same thing, but couldn't get white people to move there because it was too developed and which ultimately forced Australia to with to confront basically this crisis it can't whiten Melanesia so what is it going to do is it going to extend citizenship to Melanesians to indigenous Papuans or is it going to try and separate Papua New Guinea from the rest of the state and Papua New Guinea eventually became an independent state whereas West Papua has not it's still part of Indonesia because it's been flooded with settlers and indigenous peoples are basically a minority in many parts of the kind of especially the lowlands and the urban centers of West Papua today. So in this way, modernization ended the power of Australia to colonize, but Indo Indonesia persisted as a colonizer because of its kind of low level of development.
you dig into the Australian case quite a bit and you contrast its experience in what's today called Papua New Guinea with the Northern Territory. So what happened with the Northern Territories with the Australian state building and colonization? Yeah, so the Northern Territory is kind of the northern part of Australia. It's quite close to, to Papua New Guinea. And both Northern Territory and Papua New Guinea were kind of seen as, as often called the Achilles heel of Australia. It was the area most proximate to kind of Asia and was seen as the likely site of a future invasion. And indeed, in World War II, Japan did actually attempt to invade Northern Australia and bombed the capital of Northern Territory, Darwin. Um, so it's long been seen as this kind of area that Australia is vulnerable to invasion. But it's also an area that has had very few whites settled there. And so I describe in a chapter of the book how Australia had really tried to settle the Northern Territory in Papua New Guinea with whites in response to this kind of fear of a Northern invasion, first by Japan and then by, during the Cold War, other communist powers. But it really, it couldn't get white settlers to move there. In some ways, this goes back to that kind of state-led colonization practice Australia faced this kind of pressing threat, but it couldn't get whites to move there, which actually did make it very vulnerable to invasion during World War II. And so why then would the Australian state sort of incorporate the Northern Territories into its sort of, you know, into its nation, whereas Papua New Guinea was, you know, they pushed for it to become independent? Like, why not make the Northern Territories independent as well? It's a great question. When states were deciding what territories to kind of hold on to and what territories to, to decolonize, a common th thing you see, whether it's the United States deciding to have, the, if the Philippines become independent but wanted to hold on to Guam or other parts of the Pacific, Australia wanting to hold on to its islands as well as the Northern Territory, despite these areas being predominantly non-white, but wanting to get rid of Papua New Guinea, it's it's largely to do with the kind of population. Philippines and Papua New Guinea had quite high populations relative to these other smaller islands and to um, the Northern Territory. So extending citizenship and the, the rights of Papua New Guineans or Filipinos to emigrate to the mainland was seen as like a, as a no-go. That was seen as something that would lead to massive change in the demography of kind of mainland cities and also lead to a huge amount of necessary redistribution to these, these areas. Whereas that wasn't the case for kind of these smaller territories that had relatively few indigenous peoples that these areas were kind of hold, held onto by colonial powers. It's really fascinating, you know, when you dive into these specific details as to why a state did what it did in these different sort of geographical contexts and giving that history and the, whatever the crisis was in the demography and, and the economic development at that moment and trying to piece together and explain why the states acted the way they did vis-a-vis -vis these, these sort of colonial areas. Or, or these potential areas for colonization. And I guess it, what's interesting is that it, you're talking about, you know, in the Australian case, this, you know, white settlers coming in. And when we often when we read about colonization, we do sort of see that racial logic sometimes being privileged as if it was the reason that colonization happened. It was about trying to, you know, spread westward through manifest destiny to in, in the USA, for instance, to sort of spread the white people across the whole country and displace um, indigenous Americans. How does the racial logic fit in with the way you're understanding colonization? Racial logics, in some ways, are justifications, right? They're rationalizations for colonization. So settlers rationalize the kind of the, their their actions 
through racial logics by you know claiming that the land was not being it was wasteland was not being utilized or that that they're bringing civilization to to these areas so racial logics justify colonization but they don't explain it because the basic motivations for people to to take land and for states to annex territory remain fundamentally economic and so the the racial logics in some ways operate at a justification level but to understand why states colonize and why they ultimately stop colonizing we have to attend to the kind of material interests that's the the argument i make in the book you know done because if we understand if we want to understand why Australia, the United States, these white supremacist states ultimately stop colonizing frontier areas. Then we have to move beyond just think looking at their racial logics and their racial ideologies and think about, you know, why couldn't the United States get whites to move to the Philippines even though it tried at one point in time? Why did couldn't Australia get whites to move to Papua New Guinea even though it tried? Why has Indonesia been able to get Avenese and Balinese people to move to West Papua? despite having quite a different racial ideology, one founded on racial equality. We have to look at the kind of the logic of settlers and colonization and their kind of material interests and the, the role they play in state building. I think it, it's more illuminating to, to look at from that perspective and the racial logics act as justifications for colonization schemes that are, that are happening at the time or that justifications for colonization that, ha- that has already happened. So Manifest Destiny famously was coined you know, long after the Western colonization it has already started. If you look at the debates in the Confederation Cong- you know, Congress in the, in the United States in the 1780s, it wasn't about the decision whether to try and open up the higher valley for for European colonization wasn't founded on some kind of this desire to want to spread white man across. It was a fear that if they didn't annex these territories, that settlers would begin moving into these territories anyway and found independent republics. And so, um, it's we can't just read back into colonization schemes a racial logic that at the time, you know, maybe perhaps wasn't isn't always the the primary consideration of, of what's going on. Interesting. What is driving it becomes a, a question that, as you said, needs to be explained rather than simply being justified. In the Indonesian case, because it, it is quite fascinating about West Papua and the state of Indonesia sort of moving in different ethnic groups into to West Papua. And, and it sounds like it was sort of taken up wholeheartedly by the settlers and, and they continue to live there. Despite, you said, this sort of logic of racial equality and Indonesia was sort of leading some of the decolonization movements starting in the 50s, really. Was there a racial justification of Indonesia to sort of colonize West Papua? The racial justification that Indonesia made for colonization was that all Indonesian ethnic groups are equal, that there is no racism with Indonesian society. So perversely, this kind of discourse of racial equality was used to deny the claims of West Papuans to basically prevent other Indonesians from emigrating there. Because if all ethnic groups are equal, then no particular ethnic group has any more right to any part of Indonesia than any other ethnic group. And so moving people in, particularly if they're bringing agricultural development, and that was another justification used that there was this, can, these settlers would help develop the, the frontier, then moving people in is a move towards racial equality. It's a move towards a common nation. Um, and, you know, yeah, this is somewhat perverse, right? Because, but we see this, this kind of racial ideologies are, are malleable. They're, they're, it's kind of how white people today in the US, you know, don't necessarily try and attack 
affirmative action for based on white supremacy, saying, uh, you know, based on some kind of notion of racial inferiority, they do it on the basis that, you know, we should all be equal, you know, that there is no need for uh, this kind of reverse racism. And that's, you know, a racial kind of logic that responds to material interests, not wanting there to be some kind of affirmative action anyway. And so, so these, so Indonesia kind of had a similar perverse use of racial equality to deny a, a kind of indigenous groups or nations claim to self-determination because it, it fundamentally wanted that land and its resources. Um, so this is again why, you know, I, I think that attending to racial ideologies maybe misses the point because they're so malleable. You can justify colonization based on racial equality or racial supremacy. And you can, your racial supremacy in some ways it's it's incomplete as an explanation for colonization because states that are racially that white supremacists stop colonizing and states that are committed ostensibly to racial equality may colonize so we need other things need to explain what's going on really really fascinating sort of insight there um and the complexity, right? As 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 social scientists, what what the job is of trying to explain what's going on? You know, given this focus on colonization and the sort of the the explanation that's resting often on an economic analysis, but also sort of a political, geopolitical issue and, and issues of crisis and, and states trying to manage those crises, trying to protect its own interests, trying to exploit resources for its own gain, and using colonization process in that endeavor, which then connects to some of these racial logics. Given that, how then do we think about decolonization, which is today a very popular concept in you know the academic space i'll say because it sort of cuts across so many fields yeah so you know decolonization was coined to des- to describe the process by which indigenous peoples kind of achieved independence and self-determination from european empires right but then since the 1980s it's it's become kind of inflated as a, as a concept to describe a lot of other things, say de- decolonizing curricula or decolonizing universities. Um, this isn't, we're not talking here about establishing nation states, right? We're talking about kind of increasing diverse voices and voices from the global south or from marginalized communities. But in, in the book, I'm trying to say that, you know, I, I do use the term decolonization in the former sense, referring to indigenous self-determination because you know, I still think that process is something that is quite distinct, and we need theories to explain, you know, why Papua New Guinea, why Australia decolonized Papua New Guinea, but Australia did not. So Indonesia did not decolonize West Papua, or why America decolonized the Philippines but did not decolonize Guam. If we inflate the concept of decolonization to, to mean other things, we might lose that the ability to ask these questions. How would you begin to explain those differences between West Papua and Papua New Guinea and the Philippines and Guam? Well, Australia basically faced a crisis in the 60s and 70s. It could not colonize Papua New Guinea with whites, but there were you know, almost 5 million Papua New Guineans there at the time, who and, they, and a delegation from Papua New Guinea actually asked for citizenship and to become a state. And the Australian government basically feared that if they extended statehood to Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guineans would emigrate to Australia and they'd have to expend a lot of money on welfare. So they decided it was much cheaper to just and more expedient to for Papua New Guineans to become their own independent nation state. 
Indonesia, on the other hand, did manage to kind of just settle West Papua with people from the core and has been managed to extract a lot of resources from West Papua because it's been able to basically maintain control over West Papua through that kind of first strategy of colonization. So decolonization was a response to the failure of colonization, the failure of white colonization in Papua New Guinea. And the absence of decolonization in West Papua is a kind of the outcome of the success of colonization, right? These two things are interrelated. Indigenous peoples only get self-determination or independence when settlers don't displace them. And um, that's fundamentally a, a story about economic development. Australia failed to colonize Papua New Guinea because it was too developed and it couldn't get settlers, white, white settlers to move there. It was Indonesia managed to and has not had to kind of decolonize West Papua or kind of grant the indigenous peoples their uh, independence, which, which they want. And so you have this line in the book that basically reworks a famous line from Lenin. And you say that decolonization is the highest stage of capitalism. And I think Lenin says imperialism is the highest stage of capitalism. So, you know, walk me through that. because That's quite a, um, in a sense, provocative line that you have. Like I'm, I'm using decolonization, right, to refer to the kind of indigenous people or indigenous nation becoming and gaining independence. And Lenin, writing in the early 1900s, you know, thought that as states became more developed, that eventually the world would become divided between two or three states with these kind of grand imperial powers and that the rest in the world would be completely carved up because as states kind of became more developed, they would eventually exert their power and conquer the whole rest of the world. Uh, but that didn't happen. In fact, the opposite happened. In the late 20th century, all the major empires fragmented and it became all these new independent nation states. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I kind of delve into some of the cases in the book. You know, why did Portugal decolonize Angola? Well, it was right after it failed to colonize it, get Portuguese people to settle, settle there. Why did Australia colonize Papua New Guinea? It was right after it failed to get white people to move there. And it's America and the Philippines, southern Philippines, likewise, France and Algeria. So essentially, following the failure of colonization, states basically are forced with the fact that they have, they have this territory in the frontier that is populated by an indigenous group, and there's no prospect that indigenous group is going anywhere. They're not going to be displaced by a state. So states then have to decide what are they going to do with this indigenous population. And this is where the racial logic is actually quite interesting, because states that are more committed to, say, racism might be more likely to decolonize, because they don't want that indigenous group to actually become citizens. And that's certainly the case in Australia with Papua New Guinea. Um, they didn't, Australia didn't, this was at the time of the white Australia policy, did not want to extend citizenship to large numbers of Papua New Guineans. And so decolonizing them, granting them independence was a way of kind of removing their claims to, to citizenship. So perversely, in a way, as states develop, they lose the power to simply displace unwanted populations. So they have to grapple with the claims to equality and uh, and citizenship made by indigenous peoples in the frontier. And that's the process of decolonization. They have to, they have to bargain with indigenous peoples and decide whether they're going to grant them citizenship or grant them independence. It's such a fascinating insight into what colonization and decolonization, you know, what they are and how they operate and how colonization is not simply a process of large empires, the British Empire. You're, you're sort of looking at these cases that are much more recent from countries sort of, you know, across the world. It's not, it's not a European phenomenon only. And I think that's really valuable to recognize. I guess in that sense, then, by way of conclusion is, you know, where should we be looking at today, you know, in the present tense 
of colonization and decolonization, because obviously these things are still ongoing and still happening as different states sort of are at different levels of economic development. Yeah, so, you know, of course, there's Israel in the West Bank. And, you know, Israel has been able to so effectively colonize um, East Jerusalem and the West Bank because it's so geographically proximate to Jerusalem. So it's managed to create kind of suburbs for Israeli urbanites across the West Bank. And, you know, in the book, I talk about how it failed to colonize Gaza because it, it was too distant from urban centers. And so ultimately, kind of like Australia and Papua New Guinea, kind of cleaved off Gaza from the rest of the state. So, of course, there's Israel in the West Bank, but there are so many other cases that are just like Israel that do, don't receive nearly the same amount of attention. So Indonesia in West Papua, it's, it's um, one case I talk a lot in, about in the book that has received almost, Indonesia has had almost no international condemnation for its policies of settling hundreds of thousands of people there and displacing the indigenous population. And there's still quite a lot of ongoing violence against indigenous peoples there. Uh, or if we look at India in Kashmir, India recently, kind of Narendra Modi, abrogated a certain article of the Indian constitution that prevented non-Kashmiris from emigrating to Kashmir. And many people think that that is the prelude to a kind of policy of moving Hindus into Muslim-majority Kashmir and consolidating control over that area at last. Um, or if we look at Morocco and Western Sahara, or if we look at um, China and Xinjiang, in many cases, the, the sites where we think where colonization is most likely are kind of low-income countries with high population densities that are engaged in territorial conflict. And much of that is in Asia. So another key example would be Myanmar following the kind of cleansing of the, of the Rohingya. The, the Myanmarese government has talked about creating a demographic border fence with Bangladesh, so settling people from the core to the border with Bangladesh in, in formerly Muslim areas. And this, would again, would be kind of a, a key case where we'd expect state-led colonization because you have territorial conflict and a state that's it's relatively less developed that's easily able to open up land and have people move there quickly. Well, Lachlan McNamee, thank you so much for joining Fresh Ed. Really a pleasure to talk today. Just such great research, and, and I recommend the book highly to everyone who's listening. Thanks so much, Will. It's been a pleasure. Lachlan McNamee is a lecturer at Monash University. His new book is Settling for Less. A transcript of today's interview with a selection of resources for further exploration can be found at freshedpodcast.com. Please note that opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not Fresh Ed, which takes no institutional position. If you liked what you've heard today, please rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. Reviews really do help. Freshhead's team includes Fatih Akhtas, Obafemi Ngunle, Annabella Afroboteng, Phyllis Che Mensa, and Jose Neto. Original music for Freshhead was created by Digital Primate. Freshhead is an independently run podcast without advertisements and is made possible by the support of NORAG, the Shakhtar Family Fund, and listeners like you. Please consider donating to Freshhead by visiting freshheadpodcast.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and I'll be back next week.